Hey there, this is Brent. And this is Amanda. We are the Unreliable Narrators. Here to talk about the strangeness, the mystery, and the wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose. What is time? What is memory? What is a person? Is this reality? Where are we? Do we exist? Have you ever considered that all your choices are what have brought you right here to this very moment? Episode 11. Why Private War? Or, Why They Penned This Name on My Progenitor? Published in 1994 in Now We Are Sick, edited by Neil Gaiman and Stephen Jones. Hmm. A poem. Yeah, we said we were here to discuss the mystery and wonder of Gene Wolfe's prose, and yet here we are with poetry. Yeah, we didn't really think about that when we were composing the intro. We should have written a better intro. What were we thinking? <laughs> so, do you have any general thoughts on this before we jump in? Well, I was thinking about how we normally offer a, a synopsis of the story, that sort of thing. Don't feel entirely comfortable with trying to provide a synopsis of this poem, but... Neither do I. Really? Yeah. It's not so straightforward and simple and easy? No, but I guess we can start with the volume that it was published in. Yeah, so an interesting book, I, I suppose interesting is a good word for it. Now We Are Sick, and it's a collection of nasty poetry. An anthology of nasty verse is the subtitle. And uh, it's separated into five sections, Nasty Habits, in loving memory, less welcome tenants, night fears, and adults only. And Gene Wolfe's poem appears in the last section, adults only. Okay, that actually makes sense. Yeah. So when we first saw this collection, I assumed it was a riff on A.A. A. Milne's Now We Are Six, which is a collection of poetry for children. I don't know if you're familiar with Milne and his poetry. <laughs> but uh, as an homage, this is pretty far away from Milne. I'm familiar enough. I mean, Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin, the, Piglet. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm more familiar with. You have a friend that you've called Tigger before for being too frenetic and energetic, I'm sure? Yeah. Okay. And Piglet. Oh, and a Piglet friend. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, I had a friend that we called Piglet as well. I don't think it was the same friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I went back and looked over the Now We Are Six collection just to get a feel for the tone and mood and what Gaiman and Jones might have been aiming for in, in collecting and edi editing this selection. And there's little to no overlap. Oh, okay. But you said little. Well, so there's, there's the title, Now We Are Sick, Now We Are Six. Milne is writing a collection of poems for presumably six-year-olds. There's a lot of playful, childish imagination. My copy has a note in it from a previous owner, which says that the, the images are very good, 
With a few words, Milne can paint a whole picture. Also, it provides insight into a child's life and thoughts, um, which is, yes, I think what Milne was trying to do here. So the only, the only connections I found that might be vaguely interesting to a Wolfian listener would be that there's a, a poem called The Engineer, and it talks about trains and a break and things that you can make with springs. Um, so playful, and that's, you know, very biographical and, and tangential. Yeah. And then there's a poem called Night in Armor, and it mentions dragons. And dragons are in the opening line of Why Private War. So Milne, Knight in Armor. Whenever I'm a shining knight, I buckle on my armor tight, and then I look about for things like rushings out and rescuings, and savings from the dragon's lair, and fighting all the dragons there. And sometimes when our fights begin, I think I'll let the dragons win. And then I think perhaps I won't, because they're dragons, and I don't. I think that Wolf probably had that in mind as he was beginning to compose this poem. Yeah, that seemed to be the one that he was referencing. And I mean, y- you could read all of the poems in Now We Are Six and see if you can find up with a, find a, a better connection. But that seemed the strongest connection to me. So he opens Why Private War. There breathe no dragons anymore, and throttling bears is such a bore. It's always soppy at the shore when you're too young to get a whore. Yep. So I think, in one sense, if the uh, other collection is about turning six, this collection seems to be about you're no longer a child, but you're not an adult either. And I guess I would classify this as the perils of puberty. Yeah, it seems to be a dip into the trough of adolescence. Trough is a good word. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there's no dragons. Throttling bears is a bore. And then I take, it's soppy at the shore, like, that's boring. Right, we're not going to go and build sandcastles and, yeah. Yeah, and then you're too young to get a whore. You're a kid, so nobody takes you seriously. Yes. Even though you feel like you know it all. Right. Um, The next two lines, yes, earth seems dull on every score, and even stealing from the store brings you your weary sigh, what for? Yeah. So life has lost its sense of, of mystery and wonder, and there's not even any thrill in, in stealing a candy bar. Yeah. And I think that that, I, I don't know if I ever experienced, because I wasn't one that was given to shoplifting as a child. I think that's a good thing. I think it was a good thing too. However, I did know people who were shoplifters, and that point where it, like they were no longer getting the thrill from it. Like I do remember that. And that would kind of seem to be fifth, sixth grade, junior high is when they were, it, it wasn't, you know, it, most of the kids had a job or some sort of income where they were, um, you know, whatever, mowing lawns or that type of stuff. So shoplifting a candy bar wasn't that big of a deal. Because now they could earn money to legitimately buy the the candy bar. Yeah. So, but I definitely remember. I I, I won't say friends, but people that was well. You you know how it goes. Like oftentimes you have a people in your in your sphere that are more. It's proximity. Oh yeah, and you know 
who wants to be friends with shoplifters? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had a sibling, um, I'll, I'll keep it vague, who did shoplift a candy bar. And it wasn't such a thrill because they were caught almost immediately. And the full ritual humiliation of, of apologizing to the manager of the store and returning it and severe punishment at home. So <laughs> the idea of finding it thrilling is strange to me because I watched that unfold and was like, well, I'd be an idiot to ever do that. <laughs> so the next three lines here, yes, wait, oh child, I adore. There still remains the secret lore that lurks behind the men's room door. Yeah, so there's some secret hiding out in the men's bathroom that will give you a thrill of initiation into adulthood. Yeah, and I think what he's th there's several things here, like you know when we get into the next lines, but the definitely the the men's or boys restroom in public school they i get a sense that they're very different from the girls restroom or at least a different different type of chaos and there there's the uh like the the bragging and the like i remember there was the kids that uh would steal playboys and like sell them in the and in the, the transactions would go on in the in the boys bathroom yeah, at school yeah so all that well we have a representative from either side of this divide sitting <laughs> here at the table there was no initiation into adulthood in the sense of this poem going on in the women's restroom at least never when i was in there there were the things that went along with impending womanhood but my sense is that this is one of the significant divides between the life experience of adolescent boys and adolescent girls is that adolescent boys come into their manhood full of energy and desire and, you know, enthusiasm and braggadocio and women enter adulthood, enter their womanhood in literal physical pain, as well as the turmoil of emotional change. And it, it seems that while well, both sexes can experience a sense of, of shame and uncertainty about that transition, my experience as a teenage girl and with, you know, all the teenage girls around me were that we were sharing kind of horror stories about the, the suffering we were enduring. <laughs> I won't get any more graphic than that, I don't think, unless provoked. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, the, the collection of poems has some interesting things in it mm. but um it was it was not like what i see being described here so if you're saying that this is reflective of reality then it confirms some of my assumptions it is and i think it's reflective of a reality that hasn't transitioned into the digital age as much so and i'll get to that in a moment okay do we want to read a few more lines uh yeah there you may learn of slaves of gore, the functions of our human spore, the hammer of the great god Thor, and other things good folks abhor. And you shall learn by metaphor and scratchings of some gay graffitor, as o'er those winsome walls you pour, I know it well, it I know sore. Well. We all know what the th hammer of Thor is? Well, I was going to start with slaves. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, so that that's a 
large series. It started in 66 and like the, so the first series went through 88 and that's like 25 books, but now I. So better than a book a year. Yeah. And then I looked it up and he started writing again in 2001. And I, I think there's 32 books in the series now. My goodness, he's prolific. Yeah. It starts out as a kind of a Edgar Rice Burroughs type go to another planet. So that it's about a man who he's out camping and his father sends a spaceship to pick him up. Oh. Yeah. And his father's on this other planet. It's called Counter Earth which is it orbits the other side of uh, the sun opposite from Earth. And it's actually a, a giant spaceship. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so there's, um, this isn't doing it justice, but there's like insects that are, they're the alien species that kind of run it and they're, they're kind of considered to be gods, but they're fairly apathetic about the people. And there's different, there's, so there's like a spider alien they look like spiders. The people fly these eagles, tarns, and the, there's crossbows and swords. And it kind of starts out as this exciting, you know, like sword and sorcery planet type thing. But then as the series progresses, it gets very, um, it's about the subjugation of women to the point where they're like branding them and putting slave collars on them. Wait, literally branding women? At, yes. So that's how they get marked as a slave. Okay. And there's- Are there free women? Some. Okay. So, but then there's a twist, so to speak. The women are more free as slaves, like they enjoy it. Oh my, what a creative fantasy. Yeah. And- uh, they, they, they embrace their slavery. They embrace their slavery. Um, so, so basically what you're saying is- Sorry, they're happiest if they just accept their subservient position. That would be a correct statement. Interesting. I think the reason why he references it here is because they were sold a lot back when they first came out. They were sold next to John Carter series and, and other. So just on the shelves with other fantasy. Yeah. And it's benign enough at the beginning, but then it. It's around like book six or seven. They really go off the rails. And it really becomes about the subjugation of women rather than the subjugation of women being a plot thread. Yes. Okay. So Michael uh, Moorcock, he advocated for them to be uh, top shelf oh, yeah. products. So, that, so essentially pornography is what it amounts to. Right. I don't know if as a result of him doing that or you know campaigns he was involved in, they haven't really been sold, but they've had a, a new life as, as digital books. Right, because you can read them on the subway with no one seeing yep. you. So, and then interestingly enough, when I was looking this up, apparently like Fifty Shades of Grey has reignited an interest amongst right, women right. of these books. So. That, that sophisticated story about women's you know, healthy sexuality, it, it reignited interest in in this. Yeah. So part of the reason I think Wolf has this in here is there's a section from The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And he says, but in the act of love, we are not merely ourselves. We are also representatives. It is here no impoverishment, but an enrichment to be aware of the forces older and less personal than we work through us. In us, all masculinity and femininity of the world all that is assailant and responsive, 
are momentarily focused. The man does play Sky Father and the woman the Earth Mother. He does play form and she matter. But we must give full value to the word play. Of course, neither plays a part in the sense of being a hypocrite, but each plays a part or role in, well, in something that is comparable to a mystery play or ritual at one extreme and to a mask or even a charade at the other. A woman who accepted as literally her own this extreme self-surrender would be an idolatrist offering to a man that belongs only to God. And a man would have to be a coxcomb of all coxcombs, indeed a blasphemer, if he arrogated to himself, as the mere person he is, the sort of sovereignty to which Venus, for a moment, exalts him. But what cannot lawfully be yielded or claimed can be lawfully enacted. I think Wolf putting that in here as a one of the things that you have to navigate in adolescence is that you are playing a part and if you don't accept that like the natural thing is to go thinking that subjugating other people is something that you should be doing as a human right so he's invoking this cartoonishly um sexist i don't even think is the right word because sexist just has such a modern connotation of i'm not enacting equality it's it's much more dire in a way and complex than that, which is he's invoking these stories that are taking seriously and absolutizing something that ought to be mythologized and and part of play and mm-hmm. and and joyful con- conscious enactment, yeah, not um, conscious assumption, yeah. So yeah, Slaves of Gore. Yeah. That's a lot packed into one little line. It is. I'm not recommending any reader check it out. I accidentally bought the entire series one time. Well, 24 to 25. (laughs) Was at a bookstore when I was younger. Okay. Uh, Younger, I mean like in high school. And I saw them and they have covers similar to- Right, they look like fantasy stories. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, a whole set of books for- 24 of the 25 and then i got him and i was like uh, oh whoops <laughs> and then i was very embarrassed and i did not go back to that bookstore for a while well that's understandable because you went and picked up 24 volumes of smut uh-huh yes well that would be i think analogous to my discovery that i don't know how to pronounce her name jean owl a-u-e-l jean m owl um her clan of the cave berry series is not you know, prehistoric historical novella. It's prehistoric historical nov or not novella novels. Obviously, they're huge. They're not novellas. They're not about prehistory in a look at all of this interesting historical context sense. They're le- they're about prehistory in the look at this setting for pornography sense. <laughs> <laughs> My grandmother had the whole series on her oh. bookshelf, and so that was yeah. Like, hmm. oh, I'm not reading about, you know, okay. <laughs> um, the next line, the functions of our human spore, that seems fairly self-evident. Yes. The hammer of the great god Thor. I had to do some research on this one. Mjolnir? Yeah. I think we're informed more by uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe at this point, because we think of Mjolnir more as a a weapon. Yes. However, when you 
go back and look at the iconography and the like the jewelry that was made for that time period there is a sense that Mjolnir is a more than a weapon it's also it's like a phallic blessing and there's a section from one of the eddas now i i didn't write down which one it was i think okay. it's the poetic yes <laughs> um Mjolnir is stolen and thor dresses as a woman yes to get it back yes and part of him dressing up as a bride is he knows that part of the ceremony that Thor's hammer, literally Thor's hammer in this case, is brought out. And part of the blessing is the setting of Mjolnir on the lap of the bride. Right. So. No, no overt symbolism there. N- no. <laughs> Very innocent. It, yes. Innocence of innocence. Yes. So there's definitely a lot of subtext there that doesn't come up in the Thor movies. No, and there's also so there's a moment in one of one of the Marvel movies. I generally when I watch movies it's when I'm on an airplane going somewhere and therefore stuck in a seat for many many hours. Okay. So sometimes these things blur together and I can't remember them very distinctly. And also I'm watching them on a tiny little, mm-hmm. you know, back of the airplane seat screen. But I remember in one of the movies, he makes some comment about the balance of it being so great. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's, it's weighted perfectly or something. And that, so that flies somewhat in the face of the myth of the making of Mjolnir, where it's being forged. And I'm pretty sure it's Loki is stirring up trouble and causing problems. And he's sending flies. Into the to bite the eyes of the the dwarf smith that's crafting it, <laughs> and so the handle is actually shorter than it's supposed to be, because the smith is having such great difficulties. So that was where my mind went with that is <laughs> that you know boys in the bathroom would be worried about whether or not the hammer was correctly sized. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and other things good folks abhor. Right, which is why we're uncomfortable talking about it. Yes. Because we're good folks, people. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if you have to say it, it means it's not true. (laughs) That's, yes. Other scratchings? In this, so this is the section that I don't think has transferred into the digital age because, and, and actually now that I think about it, this may be a class thing. Maybe I'm just living in better spots than I used to growing up. Right. But graffiti in the men's room used to be very... Um, Aggressive? Yes. And just as a random example that popped into my mind, one time we were uh, traveling through, I want to say either Winnemucca or Lovelock, and we stopped because this this was with my family when I was in grade school and I needed to use uh, the restroom. So I went in there and there's this, like the entire, there's there's a novel written on the wall of the men's restroom. And it okay. was, it was uh, this gay man was explaining how you like, you know, come out and if you like I, I, I'll know you're here for whatever if you like, if you do this motion and this motion and then if like, so it was like this elaborate uh, ritual to come out to his um, his trailer. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, it, you know, engraved instructions for picking up other people. Yeah. So 
it seems like some of this might have changed because of the transition from a closeted world to an uncloseted world. Yeah. I, I don't want to reveal too much about our location, but there's a senator famously from our state who um, the wide stance mm-hmm. in the in the airport restroom. Um, yeah. So sort of this passing on of information. Now it's all written all over the Internet and or not not necessary yeah, or not as necessary. There's an app for that. Mm-hmm. And so we don't need as much graffiti. So I, I feel like somewhat the, a cultural shift has, has taken place in that what used to be scratched on, in public restrooms is now just simply said aloud or, or communicated in a digital space. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of shocking to, to think of that much stuff being scratched in the bathroom walls because I did not grow up in a, in a different social class than you did. And many, uh, you know, uh, highway, uh, rest stop, um, mm-hmm. gas station in, in a small town, um, specifically Winnemucca at one point or another, <laughs> you know, I, I never saw anything like that. I, I, I never saw more than. Uh, maybe a single word scratched into a, a, a bathroom wall and, hmm. and very often not even that much. So the, the worst thing about, you know, women's public restrooms is that occasionally you'd find a discarded sanitary product of some sort that didn't make it into the trash can. Or there's all the little bits of toilet paper that are torn off and then kind of have fallen on the floor. And so it looks like there's just paper everywhere and it's just kind of gross looking. And you might get it stuck to your shoe. This is about the extent of the difficulty. That- yeah, consider yourself lucky. Because I remember the toilet seats used to have poems etched in them. Oh, my like goodness. That's carved, horrible. Yes, carved with a knife, the tiles. People would bring in stickers, like white stickers. But it, it and so then they could cover up other poems. So and, we could layer the graffiti. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then people would draw art. I'm using art here. Metaphorically, um, but yes. but then they would uh, that uh, fixant that you can, spray paint fixant that you can um, it's clear. So when people draw in pencil, so you don't smear it, mm-hmm. they would take that into the bathrooms and spray it over their drawings. So then it was harder to um, for them to clean. So you, you ended up having to paint over. Like I remember looking up at the ceiling, and people would there'd be things written up on the ceiling, sometimes on the floor. Who has the energy for this? I mean, maybe it's just carrying a pocket knife in your pocket since, you know, as a man, you have clothes that, has po- that have pockets. And, and if you have a pocket knife, you, you must carve something. Maybe it's just the pure id that is released when that first flood of testosterone hits. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't know either because it's, <laughs> it's not something I see anymore. Yeah. Well, yeah, and did it also used to be the case that men took less time in the bathroom than women? Because my sense is that men tend to take less time in the bathroom than women do, and they also had time to carve all this graffiti in there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now we're going to get to the point of the poem where I'm a little confused. I would agree with you here. This section changes. Tone. Yeah. Yeah, so little man, learn one thing more. Add but my number to the core. Tis triple X. XX54, and this old hand will spill your gore. I'll pour your guts out on the floor, nor will I like you furthermore. What? So I think 
I think, and this is based off of my experiences in the 80s, trying to... Going go, way back. Yeah, 80s, early 90s, trying to use a restroom. There was often people that would linger in the men's restroom. I am officially sketched out. Like I said, times have changed. Okay. I think Because in the 80s, you were still a little boy. That is correct. Okay. I think we have a perspective change here. And so little man would be something that one of those people in there would say to a you say little man to a to a boy to you know acknowledge that oh hey you act you, you know you're grown up like i noticed right. you and i think the cuz then it's like to triple x so which is porn but then you also have xxx so you have a but that's a for a phone number the first 3 x which which was fairly common to have that stuff like phone numbers carved into the yeah so I, I think Wait, that that song is now starting to make sense to me. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> eight, eight, six, seven. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. So I think the perspective change here is that we're we're getting this from somebody who's trying to pick up younger people in the. Um, what the, a polite way to say creepy old men were being predators. predators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So and that's the like spill your gore. Nor mm-hmm. will I like you furthermore. So okay. it's the act. Okay. And I don't think I'm alone in being, the, like, I, I've heard other people talk about, like, that. that's a thing. Like, it was a thing. I don't yeah. care about it as much anymore. So I think that that's, I think okay. that that is that perspective shift there. Okay. I, that makes sense. I couldn't make sense of that okay. stanza. I was having a, a hard time with it. But then it that would um, help with the the final stanza kid i'll forgive you well before you hear the splash of charons or then great god's mercy i'll implore and wrap me in a mantle pour um so there there seems to be some sort of invocation of repentance or or you know mm-hmm. regret for terribleness yeah did you want to talk about the this section has a title to it. Oh, yeah. And it's French, so it's hard to say. L'envoi or l'envoi. I think, well, I don't speak French. <laughs> my, my theory with French is that you mumble and drop any final consonants. I, I can agree with that. I, if there are any French people listening, I would apologize. But anytime I've tried to speak to a French person, they were just very indignant that I didn't speak French, and then they spoke perfect English to me. So I haven't been able to learn. <laughs> the definition for that is it's like a detached set of verses at the end of a yes. composition to convey a moral or meaning. Yes. It's also a poem that Kipling wrote for a woman who ended up, re- she rejected him. Oh, okay. So, I did not know about this Kipling connection. Yeah. So he was interested in this uh, younger woman, and she um, expressed that she was not interested. And he kind of, um, so part of the reason why he was interested in her is she was an artist, too. And not because she was a younger woman? I mean, what, are, what kind of an age disparity are we talking about here? That I don't know. Okay. I'm going it, to... It was probably at least creepy by our standards. Yeah, but okay. normal for the time period. Yes, yes, we'll normalize these things. Is it normal on gore? <laughs> as much of a fan of Kipling that Wolf was, I 
think he had that in mind. And because mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a parting, like he says, okay, I know this, we're not going to see each other again. And then uh, he he didn't, it wasn't collected until after he died. Okay. So he had, he had sent a poem. Do you have a, a copy of that or can you give a summary of what it was or just an expression of his, you know, regret or? Okay. So the poem itself is longer. There's a probably a dozen stanzas or more. And it it doesn't summarize super easily. That's okay. Yeah. So it, it has a lot of imagery and like, like at one point we're we're in the Mississippi Bay and another point I think we're um in the Middle East. Okay. And it's a well traveled poem. It is. And then there's um a point where we're probably in Rome and then maybe Mongolia. And so there's a number of things that are going on in the poem. But at the end, the, uh, the last stanza says, The Lord knows what we may find, dear lass, and the deuce knows what we may do. But we've back once more on the old trail, our own trail, the out trail. We're down, hold down on the long trail, the trail that is always new. It's about them parting. Okay. so. I, I'm not sure entirely what to make of this final stanza here. I, I already read part of it, but I'm going to go ahead and just reread the whole thing. Kid, I'll forgive you well before you hear the splash of Charon's oar. Then great God's mercy I'll implore and wrap me in a mantle poor. Bind rueful brows in mandragore to please the judge and each juror, which is a, a strained rhyme there. Recant like an ambassador and break each grave judicial snore with many a penitential roar. So what have you unpacked from that? Well, I believe mandragore is the mandrake. Yeah, mandrake root. That's, that's what I came up with. Mm-hmm. The ferryman of Hades is in here. Yep. And that is, so I, it's something did, to do with- Did we kill the, the predator and now he's on his way to Hades? I don't know. This part is difficult for me. I don't exactly know what's going on because there's death is in here, but then with the mandrake root, the mandrake is multiple layers of meaning. It, it shows up in the Bible, yeah, um, as a as a plant for fertility, yes. But then it's also a magic plant in medieval texts and in ancient texts. But it's also a plant of death. It's a poison, yes. So I don't know which one he's referencing, and maybe all of them. Right. The wrap me in a mantle pour, I assume, is the death. Um, a shroud. A death shroud. Yeah, that's, that's what I read for that. The section that I don't quite get with the twist in the last four lines is then we're, we're before a judge and the jurors, mm-hmm. but then you're an ambassador? Yeah, to recant like an ambassador and break each grave judicial snore with many a penitential roar. This seems a a strange mix of uh, immunity, like, you know, diplomatic immunity and Mm -hmm. defiance in the face of a trial, which doesn't go with rueful brows, mercy all implore, and, and going down to the grave peacefully. Yeah, there's only one way that I can make sense of this. Okay. So if we take the entire structure of the poem 
as a, a navigation for a young male to get out of adolescence. Okay. The only thing that I can think of is if we take a step back and we remember that Wolf um, was a Catholic with this death imagery and at, but at the same time, like seems to be a passing through death without the judgment. Right. I think the arrow pointing beyond the text is that the way out of all of these, this word isn't used in here, but sins, the things that you need to avoid, the like hmm. tr treating women as women as though they are slaves and subjugating other people, the sexual predator aspect of this, the, the wallowing in sexual sins. I think the thing that's pointing beyond this is that there is some sort of forgiveness because this is something that while you should be ashamed of, it's also something that everybody has to go through. Right. So this is a, there's, there's a death that's necessary, but it's not the final death because this is, this is a process that you have to go through to mature. Yeah. That I think that that's a good way to make sense of it. It also, I don't want to move on too fast if you have more to say about this, but it also seems to point to something interesting about this poem's place in the collection. Okay. Just, I didn't read the entire collection, but I read a round in Now We Are Sick. And Wolf's poem stands out for being, I think, the only the only one that I read closely enough to understand this about <laughs> that with some sort of trajectory out of the wallowing in uh -huh. sickness. Okay. There is there's gore, goriness, um, there's there's all kinds of perversity described in different ways and and you know, little stories told in poems that very much seem to be embracing or running into the repulsiveness of the thing. No, it's a collection called Now We Are Sick, not We Once Were Sick or We Are Now Getting Better. <laughs> yeah. But that idea of, of moving on from the sickness of adolescence, the sickness of, um, you know, perverse desires as, as, a, as a normal developmental stage, that, that's certainly not present in anything else that I read. There's, there's just a lot of, um, delight in, yeah. in violent imagery. Mm. Um, so one thing I, I didn't, I forgot to bring this up when we were reading through, but later editions of this text, uh, particularly uh, translations, um, there is a textual variant. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so when it's talking about the gay graffiti, the yes. gay is dropped from the poem. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder if that's because of the ambiguity of the word gay at the time of those translations, because it could be happy. Yeah. Graphitor or, or gay. Mm-hmm. Graphitor. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's interesting in the sense that you may run across it, but I don't like it. It probably tells you more about our times than it does about Wolf's intent with the poem. That makes a lot of sense. I don't have anything else. Okay. Well, this was a difficult exercise in exegeting meaning from a somewhat odd poem. 
Yeah, it's an odd poem in an odd publication. Not not one that I would be like, hey, everybody go out and get a copy of this. <laughs> it feels like the kind of thing calculated to shock or offend or, I don't know, just push a little perversity into, you know, a, a, a pseudo playful context or a playful context. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, it, it certainly doesn't, as a collection, doesn't land for me. And so, yeah, I, I don't find it particularly interesting, especially not in this day. I mean, it was published in the 1990s, which is well before we all, you know, had to face all of the horrors that the World Wide Web could, you know, just drop in front of your eyes unexpectedly. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. I don't have anything else. All right. Well, we can call it good. All right. The Unreliable Narrators are Amanda Patchen and Brent Towell. And, as Gene Wolfe said, The design of good tubing bends is sometimes considered a kind of dark magic, but it need not be. The points to be remembered are that the tubing must be installed after bending and that it will expand longitudinally as well as diametrically as the system warms up. Yeah.